So we're here at Marshall's with Liz for some holiday shopping. She's really nailing it this year, isn't she? Oh, yep. She's got a record player for Amy. A gorgeous cozy sweater for Jason. And some hot pink fluffy slippers for her sister. The perfect gift. Wait a sec. <gasps> She's getting a pair for herself. Well, with prices this good, it would be rude not to. You know what? She totally deserves it. Oh, totally. Happy holidays, everyone. See you at Marshall's. Fabulous brands. Feel good prices at Marshall's. This week, back in 1998, D-Generation X issued the following statement. Warning, this does include strong language, which I think some of the snowflakes out there may not be able to handle. We will only use the words ass, damn, hell, and bitch. We will never, however, use the words shit, fuck, goddamn, Jesus Christ, faggot, or any other racial or sexual slurs. Now then, as it pertains to video... We promise there will be less dick references. Oh, shit. Watch your fucking mouth. Oh, fuck me. God damn it. Fuck. Anyway, there will be less penis references. Oh, and one last thing. Even though many of you believe that currently the favorite pastime in the oral office is swallow the leader, I did not. I repeat, I did not sleep with that young intern. As a matter of fact, I was up all night. Now, obviously, on Raw that night, they did not air the uncensored version. I mean, they were really starting to go over the top, but not to that extent. Could you imagine if they would have said the F word on regular TV? Uh, imagine if they did it now. But um, even though I did hear that USA Network is now uncensoring the F word on other TV shows. so But anyway, in case you forgot or maybe you weren't around back then, this is the same segment as to how it came off on WWE Raw this week back in 1998. They gave it more of a political theme to it. You got to remember this was right smack in the the midst of the scandal between President Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. So D-Generation X from Monday Night Raw, the State of the Union censored. We interrupt your regularly scheduled program for this special report. My fellow Americans. Yep, that's exactly how it went down that night. I think some of you out there probably have never heard the uncensored version before. And I'm not going to lie. If I would have realized that this took place uh, this week in history in 1998, I probably would have went online, bought one of the old D-Generation X VHS tapes that came out in 1998, burned a copy into my computer, and had crystal clear audio quality for everyone to enjoy. But I believe me when I tell you, when I put audio clips up here, if they're not my own, I search and I search and I search. Number one, I'm shocked that there's some clips that I can't find online. 
But in other cases, I'm also dismayed as to the piss poor audio quality that's online. And some of the things later you'll hear, the audio quality is phenomenal. I did as great of uh, editing as I possibly can. There's one in particular that there was nothing that I could have done to improve the audio quality. It's a little bit of fun. I know a lot of you out there may have never even knew existed, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, I want to say hello to everyone. This is episode five of This Week in Wrestling History. I am Don Tony. As always, I want to thank you very much for listening. And I know some of you out there are still questioning, why is this only episode five? You've been doing this for about 15 to 20 weeks already. Truth of the matter is, as the segments uh, developed over the last bunch of months, I made a lot of changes, a lot of format changes, the way I went about audio, quality, editing, just arranging information. So technically, as of January 1st of this year, that was officially episode one. Basically, we practiced for a few months to get it where we wanted it to be, and now we go from here. So this week, we are covering the period of January 30th through February 5th, and we got some really good ones this week. And I got to give lots of props for everyone out there that uh, liked what I had posted on social media about this week in history back in 1976. I know there's a lot of you out there that did not grow up watching The Six Million Dollar Man. You know, Steve Austin, you know, man, buried alive, whatever it said, you know, barely alive, not buried alive, barely alive. We can rebuild him. We have the technology. And I know for clickbaiters out there, they probably, if they did history segments on their website, they probably would have titled this as Andre the Giant versus Steve Austin. It really happened. And then you click on the website and then you basically would get what I'm about to share with everybody. But when I was a kid growing up, I was a fan of the TV show Six Million Dollar Man, Steve Austin, Bionic Man. And I did not know in 1976 that Andre the Giant did the character of Bigfoot. I didn't become a wrestling fan until 1979. And at that time, I was still a little kid. But as a couple of years went by and I started to learn about, you know, who Andre the Giant was and then watching repeats of Six Million Dollar Man, that's when I realized, holy shit, Andre the Giant was Bigfoot on a Six Million Dollar Man. Now, just to clarify, because some people may not be aware of this that followed, you know, the series or maybe follow it in later years, they came back a couple of years later Uh, on this uh, Bionic Man, this $6 million man show, and they revisited the character of Bigfoot. But they had called it Sasquatch, and it was not Andre the Giant who came back a couple of years later for that role. I don't remember the guy's name. It's all over the, the net. Of course, I could pause this and get it for you, but I don't think anybody out there gives a shit because this is mostly wrestling stuff. But it was this week in history, 1976, Andre the Giant made a couple of appearances as Bigfoot on the $6 million man. And what's really, really cool is that I was searching around to see if I could find a really cool picture that uses a synopsis or maybe a vi- an audio clip that I could use from the show. And I found an interview segment that Lee Majors, who portrayed the $6 million man, he did an interview only a couple of years ago talking about Andre the Giant appearing 
on the $6 million man. And he shared a couple of personal stories. And I listened to it. It was five minutes long. I thought it was fucking cool. So I I can almost guarantee probably 99.9% of you out there never heard this little interview clip with Lee Majors. But here it is. Lee Majors talking about Andre the Giant on the set of The $6 Million Man. And if you're a fan of Andre, you will really appreciate what he says. Most memorable, and I would have to say, I, I get I get this a lot from people who I run into on the street, uh, is, is the Bigfoot episodes. And Bigfoot was, uh, of course, everybody's still interested in Bigfoot. I think there's still a, a group of people out there still trying to find Bigfoot, even to this day. And I'm not sure he exists, but uh, he exists for me in a, in a very big man, a very giant of a man named Andre the Giant. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how tall he was, but I know it was seven foot five or six and probably weighed over 400 pounds. And, and then uh, to put him in a Bigfoot uh, costume, he was even, uh, uh, he loomed much larger. And I remember the first day that we uh, worked, I had a, I had a fight scene in the woods with Bigfoot, and uh, we're, f we're fighting, and I remember he picks me up, and he throws me, I don't know, it seemed like forever, and I landed, and he's supposed to come and run and dive on top of me, and I'm, and I'm thinking I'm going to get crushed. I'm going to get crushed here. And it was sun was bright, and I'm laying there, and I see him coming, and then all of a sudden it gets dark it's the cloud it's the shadow of bigfoot coming down on me and i'm i'm holding my breath and he hits the ground and i'm thinking he, he, he didn't even touch me he didn't even touch me i mean it was so amazing and then i realized well you know the guy was a, a champion uh, world champion wrestler and professional wrestler. That, that's what they do for a living, so now I know they're good. But anyway, Andre uh, was such a sweet man. He was a gentleman. Uh, he, had, he, he was kind of a restaurateur. He had a restaurant in France from where he was born and raised. And, and uh, maybe that's why he was so big. Maybe he loved his own cooking, but he did love to cook. And, uh, I, and I remember he would sit around and it would be so hot. It would be you know, uh, 90 degrees, and I remember watching him one day, and he he drank uh, a case of beer. He would he sat, and he would take a can of beer, and he would drink it, and he'd crush the can and throw it away, and he would drink about four at a time. And I watched him, and within an hour, he had drunk a case of beer. And we, we just were amazed, and we wondered. He never, never went to the bathroom either, so we couldn't figure that out. So... The next day, I, I, it's a practical joke. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I will. But somebody had some little diuretic of some sort. And so we put it in one of his beers and drank it down. He still drank his case of beer. He still never went to the bathroom. Must have been, uh, he must have had a very, very large kidney. But when you're that big, I guess you got two pretty big kidneys. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting uh, story. And he was just, it was just one of my favorite episodes. And I did battle Bigfoot, um, I know, at least one other time. The uh, the only uh, thing is that Andre didn't do the other one. Uh, in fact, I think that might have been the first one. It was uh, Ted Cassidy, who's a, a big stuntman, and uh, but he did a wonderful job too. So anyway, th those are my two favorites. Another uh, episode. Uh, I don't know which episode it was in, but we had to uh, with Andre the Giant. We had to uh, 
uh, go through the Universal Tunnel, uh, one of the attractions up there, which uh, which is basically uh, you can't really walk through it without uh, veering to one side or another, mainly to the right. And I know when the trams go through to the, take the tourists, they have guardrails kind of on the side up a little bit so the tires won't, they'll know when they're off the road. But Andre had to carry me uh, through this tunnel for a ways, and um, it was like midnight and everybody was tired. And uh, I just remember when he picked me up, because I, I, I tried to walk it, and I could only get like maybe 20, 20 uh, maybe 5 or 10 yards, and then I would just automatically start going to the right. And he picked me up, and I'm thinking, because... Uh, off to the right side, you know, it's just it's 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 a straight platform, but it's surrounded by a drum that that keeps going around and around. So it really affects your uh, it's an optical illusion. And uh, so uh, he picks me up, and we're walking, and I'm just scared to death because I'm uh, I keep he's veering and veering and veering just a little bit, and uh, I could I could imagine going over that with Andre landing on top of me for real, and then being in like a washing machine going around and around. <laughs> But anyway, he ended up doing it, and I, I got to admire him for that costume and the big a man as he was, and and uh, and car uh, pulling that thing off. That was quite awesome. Andre would, wasn't uh, shy about uh, getting in line at lunch, uh, and of course you'd you'd have a a board saying chicken, steak, and fish, and they'd ask him what he wanted, and he'd say chicken, steak, and fish, and they'd give him a piece of chicken, and they say, oh, no, no, chicken. <laughs> so they ended up giving him a whole chicken. And, uh, and a, you know, he, a couple of three or four steaks, and uh, so the, the man could eat. And uh, breakfast, it was like uh, a dozen dozen eggs instead of a couple of eggs. Uh, so he uh, he kept the catering company on its toes, but I guess they liked it. They, uh, they made more money when Andre did the shows. We fast forward to 1988, and this week in 88, WWE truly made TV history as far as wrestling goes and network television. And, you know, we always hear about this is your life with Mick Foley and the rock drawing unbelievable ratings. And I know that there's another episode where rating was even higher, but when you go back to 1988, I saw this live as it went down on a Friday night. I know a lot of you that are older wrestling fans did as well. This was so big back then. And just to tell you the rating would blow your mind. Because you think of WWE now, they get three, 3 million viewers, 3.5 million viewers. I actually predicted that Raw 25 would get 4.5 million viewers. Just think, back in 1988, the main event scored 33 million viewers. 33 million for wrestling. Now... Here's the gist of the main event that took place this week in 88. We were used to Saturday night's main event. Well, WWE did a Friday night version as well called the main event. This was the first one. I believe they did five in total. And this took place at the Market Square Arena in Indianapolis, Indiana. Now, the live crowd was treated to a full wrestling event. They had dark matches such as Demolition over Billy Jack Haynes and Ken Patera, Ron Bass over Coco Beware, the British Bulldogs over the Islanders, Hacksaw Jim Duggan over the One Man Gang, the Ultimate Warrior over Samoan Sika. But we had three matches air on primetime television. The first one was the Honky Tonk Man retaining his 
intercontinental title, but losing on a countout against Macho Man Randy Savage. You know, for all of the criticism that Honky Tonk Man gets over the years, people always bring up that very quick match against Ultimate Warrior, and people say the Honky Tonk Man wasn't that great of a wrestler. Go watch the match that he had against Macho Man on this episode of the main event. It's not a five-star match or even a four-star match, but Honky Tonk Man could carry his own, believe me when I tell you. It was a decent match. Two other matches happen on the card. Now, I'm going to jump to the last one, and then we'll go back to the one that obviously is the most important. On the main event, it went off the air at exactly one hour. There's no overtime like the USA Network, and there's no overtime like the WWE Network. After the hour was done, they went off the air. And right at the end of the broadcast, we had about five minutes to go. It was Strike Force versus the Heart Foundation. And it went off the air with, you know, the match in progress. Now, we never got to see the finish of this match. We only knew the outcome, but we never got to see the finish. A couple of years ago on the WWE Network, they actually aired, when they added this episode in the main event to their network, they aired the actual finish to this match. So I'm like, oh, cool. You know, we never got to see the finish since 1988. I watch it on the network. The fucking finish took place about... 30 seconds later. It was a quick roll-up by Strike Force onto the Heart Foundation, and I was left with, that's it? That's all it was? That's what we missed? That's what they held back all these years? 30 seconds. That's all it was. But there you go. Now, we all tuned in that night because, look, WWE was fresh off of WrestleMania 3. 93,000 fans in attendance. Hogan versus Andre. You know, it was just a big gigantic buzz for WWE at this time. And they aired the rematch on this night of Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan. Now, the storyline going into this is that Ted DiBiase had hooked up with Andre, and Andre said that if he wins the title, he is going to give it to Ted DiBiase. So the match takes place. And, you know, we always hear about Earl Hepner screwing Brett. You watch this episode of the main event. What about Dave fucking Hepner screwing Hulk Hogan? You know, I know Bret Hart's being screwed is much more controversial, but man, Hulk Hogan that night had the title for a consecutive streak of 1,474 days. Hulk Hogan was not leaving to go to WCW. And in storyline, I'm talking strictly storyline right now, Hogan gets pinned by Andre the Giant And after the one count, Hogan's shoulder is clearly up in the air, and Dave Hepner is not paying attention and still counts the three, gives Andre the the title. Mean Gene Oakland interviews Andre. Andre is declared the champion. He's announced as the champion, and then he surrenders the title to Ted DiBiase. Fans are going nuts. You know, Hogan is just confused what the fuck just happened. And if you go watch it again, nobody ever brings up the fans, how they got confused that night. Because after Andre left the ring and DiBiase and everyone else, Earl Hepner enters the ring. So now we have Earl Hepner and Dave Hepner looking at each other. And on commentary, you got Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura. He's Dave Hepner. No, he's Dave Hepner. No, he's Dave Hepner. And Hogan is looking at both of them like, I don't know who is who. 
And then Dave Hepner cheap shots Earl Hepner. And if you watch it, the crowd pops. They actually cheered for it. Because if you think of it in storyline, the fans thought that the good guy, Earl Hepner, hit the bad referee, the paid-off referee. But as far as WWE storyline goes, no. The bad guy attacked the good guy. The fans cheering thought the good guy attacked the bad guy. So they're cheering. Earl Hepner exits the ring while well, he gets knocked out of the ring. Dave Hepner is looking at Hogan, and then I guess the crowd realized, oh, whoa, whoa, fuck, we're not supposed to be cheering this guy. Hogan picks up Dave Hepner, throws him out of the ring onto DiBiase, Virgil, and the rest is history. And this would ultimately lead with the storyline of the title being vacant for, you know, for not too long of a period of time. But, you know, this was the first time. And I know we've talked about Inoki and Backlund in the past, but this is the first time where there was a significant vacancy as far as the WWF title goes. And what I mean by that is technically as far as acknowledgement. I think that would be the right way to put it. Um, The title actually was vacant on three separate occasions between 79 and 82, but WWE does not recognize any of them. So this is truly the first time where the title was deemed vacant, reported vacant, acknowledged vacant. And there have been reports over the years that Ted DiBiase worked a couple of house shows throughout the month of February, uh, well, the beginning of February, and was announced as the WWF champion. So there you go. So it was a pretty, pretty big deal back in 88. Uh, And those that are curious, the last edition of Main Event aired in October of 1990. In fact, I think one of the, I I like to call them the rough sketches, the rough drafts, you know, the uh, pre-official episodes of these. Back in October, I actually talked about the last edition of Main Event. So there you go. 1989, the second edition of the Main Event happened this week in wrestling history. And once again, major storyline goes down. This was the night where the mega powers exploded. Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, Elizabeth in the corner. They're taking on the Twin Towers of Akeem and the Big Boss Man. During the match, Randy Savage was thrown out of the ring by Akeem. He falls onto Miss Elizabeth. Miss Elizabeth sells being knocked out beautifully. But you look back on it, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. and you say to yourself, you know what, not for nothing, but why didn't the officials come out to help Elizabeth to the back? Why did it have to be Hogan? So Hogan, because he feels bad for Elizabeth, she needs medical attention, she needs help, blah, 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 blah. Hogan um, brings Miss Elizabeth to the back. Now, granted, Hogan did return back to the ring. He got in the match, and uh, there was some dissension between Hogan and Savage. Hogan, um, you know, remember, he took Miss Elizabeth to the back. Macho Man was pissed off, you know, trying to accuse Hulk Hogan of trying to steal Elizabeth away from him. They had a little bit of dissension. Anyway, the match ends up happening, and Hogan goes on to win the match for the team. After the match, I was going to play the audio, but it does sound kind of corny. 
on here. You could see the video online. If you and if you haven't seen it in years and you want to see it again, I mean, I always get a kick out of it because it almost looks like Ms. Elizabeth starts laughing at one point, but I don't think she was. You know, she always had that shrieky look on her face that almost looked like laughter. But she's in the back, she's laying on this table, and Hogan and Savage start getting into an argument. Hogan is trying to convince Miss Elizabeth, talk some sense into him, brother, talk some sense into him. And Macho Man attacks him from the back. All hell breaks loose. Miss Elizabeth starts screaming. Officials try to break it up, blah, 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 blah. And this was the start of the hype of Savage versus Hogan, WrestleMania five. The mega powers explode. 1991, WCW presented Class of the Champions 14. Reason why I mention it, it is noted for the return of Dusty Rhodes to WCW after spending two years in the WWF. Now, from what I recall, Dusty Rhodes was not on camera wrestling that night, but as far as working behind the scenes at least, that was his return. What I always remember from that event, two matches in particular, Scott Steiner versus Ric Flair for the heavyweight title going to a draw, which was, to me, a lot of fun. I enjoyed that match. And for in case some of you have never seen it before, you can go check it out. Missy Hyatt over Paulie Dangerously, Paul Heyman, in an arm wrestling match. You know, comedic, you know, comedy, gold. But uh, it's anybody that's a Paul Heyman fan, you've never seen it. Go, go watch it. Go check it out. It's on the WWE Network. This Week in History, 1993, Lex Luger makes his WWF in-ring debut on Monday Night Raw. Does anybody remember who he faced that night? Anybody? Well, that same night was the return of Brutus the Barber Beefcake, who was out for many years, came back, and he looked pretty good, but he wouldn't stay in the company all that long. And that night, I will always remember it, because they were hyping up Super Bowl right around that time, and they had Mr. Perfect do that... Vintage segment of the perfect pass. Fucking awesome, man. <laughs> when he threw the ball up in the air and you hear his music hit and he's running down the gym and he catches his own ball that he threw. You know, for anybody that is a fan of old school baseball, you would hear stories about uh, players from the Negro League that was so fast that someone could hit his own ball and then run to the outfield and catch it. I don't remember who it was, but um, I remember a notorious story about uh, an, a black player in the Negro Leagues way back, you know, in the 20s or the 30s that hit a ball, ran out to the outfield, and caught his own fly ball. And, you know, I actually think about it. I wonder if that could really be done. If you really think about the time involved, if you could hit the ball really high up in the air, drop the bat, and somehow have, like, the, the mitt in your back pocket, you start jetting out to the outfield... I wonder if you could do that. I wonder if someone, and something tells me someone has done it. So, but anyway, uh, just getting back to it. Who did Lex Luger face that night? Um, Jason Knight. Remember the sexiest man alive in ECW? That was uh, his opponent on Monday Night Raw. Jason Knight took on Lex Luger in Lex Luger's first WWF match. This week in 1994, a very famous, very important match in ECW's early history. It was the event the night the line was crossed. And the main event was a three-way dance for the ECW heavyweight title, Shane Douglas versus Terry Funk versus Sabu. And it, it was a very, very, very 
memorable match, a very important match. And, you know, when you look back at the greatest matches in ECW history, sure, there's a lot of hardcore memories and other stuff like that. This three-way dance, one-hour time limit draw, I think probably should be in the top five of ECW matches of all time. In fact, ECW is mentioned quite a bit in this week's episode because there was two very important announcements that took place this week in history regarding ECW. One that was good and one that sucked. But then, again, when I mention the one that sucked, some of you out there might feel like, you know what, it's kind of like when someone is really like brain dead, terminally ill, nothing you could do about it. You might want to take them off live support. That technically might fit what I get into a little bit later. But um, that happened in 1994. This week in 1996, I remember this clearly. Went with my friends ECW, Queens Boulevard, you know, and the funny thing is, is that I know after the event took place, so many people went to Goldfingers to fucking go hang out at the strip joint, stuff like that. I had been invited to go. I did not go because I had to work the next day, but I went to ECW that night and Bam Bam Bigelow made his ECW debut. It was really, really cool. And a tag match that I always remember. Eliminators defeating Cactus Jack and Mikey Whipwreck. You know, this was the start of the beginning of the end of Cactus Jack and ECW. I mean, we already heard the rumblings, but still, I mean, this was the beginning of, you know, the transition of Cactus Jack leaving ECW. But very memorable night. Always loved going to ECW live and in person. It was fucking great, man. It really was. Now, Going to give you another audio clip right now. This was 1997. ECW had an event called Crossing the Line Again. They did this type of event, I think, two or three times. This might have been the third at this time. And the show opened up with an announcement by Paul Heyman. Now, again, this sucks because I have the VHS tape. And if I realized that the audio quality was going to be so piss poor online, I would have just threw it in there, burned it onto a DVD, then burned it into the computer or, you know, maybe do some audio connections and just cap the audio, put it online. But the audio is manageable. I did do some editing with it. And this was Paul Heyman's announcement in progress that took place that night, announcing that ECW for the first time ever would be coming to pay-per-view.
You know, another moment that night that a lot of people don't bring up. This week on that same event, crossing the line again. This was the first ever time that Bubba and Devon hit the 3D move. They actually, what had happened was Devon Dudley, if I remember correctly, uh, was taking on Sandman. Sandman defeated Devon Dudley. And at that time, they were really pushing Joel Gartner as a heel announcer. And then Joel Gartner came out. And um, even though Sandman won, he said something like, the winner by a score of four to two, Devon Dudley. And then Bubba, Bubba Ray and Devon would attack Sandman because Sandman had caned Joe Gartner and blah, 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 blah. Spike Dudley was a little bit confused and upset with uh, the way that the Dudleys were handling things. So they turned on Spike Dudley as well and they hit 3D on Spike Dudley. So Spike Dudley is the first ever recipient of 3D at that time. I think it was called the, the double Bubba cutter because Bubba Ray was already doing a cutter. But because now they were adding Devon into the move where Devon would lift the person up and then Bubba would do the cutter, they called it the uh, double Bubba cutter or maybe double team Bubba cutter. But that happened this week also, 1997. Now, not a little audio clip. It's only one minute long and it's actually not part of this week's history, but I want to share it with everyone. I talked in recent months, that something I think WWE needs to consider for online, it can't cost that much to set up. It can't cost that much to stream it. But back in the late 90s, WCW did this. I was definitely one amongst many that enjoyed it. The problem is at that time, we didn't really think about how to record live audio that was streaming from a real player or real media. You remember those files, the RM files? Well, back in the late 90s, WCW had an idea of doing something called pay per listen. And if you didn't have the money for a pay-per-view or they were having a house show event and you wanted to listen to the audio of what went down, they had like a radio broadcast team that would air play-by-play, play, and they would be live at the arena, and they you would hear the crowd in the background. You'd hear sometimes some of the wrestlers in the ring, the moves, or the you know hitting the mat, and you would pay a fee. I think it was around 10 bucks at the time, and you would connect to their server, and through re real media player, you would hear the, pay, the, the event, pay per listen. And again, I'm pissed off that I did not think at that time to record these events, you know, because I recorded my hotlines in 1999 into the computer. I I thought in advance that would be something that people would enjoy later on. I still got them. So, you know, I was, people say I'm very ahead of my time as far as that time. How many of you out there did hotlines or podcasts back in the late nineties and then decided you're going to record it and transfer it into your computer and save it and digit digitize it? So, you know, I, I did that in 90, starting 99, but in 98 with the paper listens, I didn't even think of recording these. The audio quality was abysmal. I mean, it wasn't your regular announcers. A lot of times you would have like the secondary and tertiary announcers that would be doing it, but it was still fun. And it pisses me off because if you go search online, you will hear people who claim that they have these 
you know, saved in their computers and they just need to convert it to put it online. Let me tell you something, everyone. In this day and age, all right, you could go on Google and type in free RM to MP3 converter or free RM to wave converter. And you download it, you put the fucking file in there, you wait about three or four minutes, and now you got the audio in MP3 form. Everybody out there that claims that they got it and they just need to convert it. Look, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you made that claim online, all right, maybe there's a little bit of a process involved. Or maybe you even had to spend quite a bit of money to get a good program to convert it and whatever but in 2018 or 2019 2020 to turn around and to say to people i I have it i gotta convert it one of these days i'll convert it you're fucking full of shit seriously but there is one minute of audio online as of right now and it was the event where bill goldberg lost his streak in wcw when kevin nash beat him I have that audio. Again, you got to remember, this goes back to the late 90s. It was real media player. You did not have bass. It was like listening. The best way I could explain it, it's like listening through an old AM transistor radios. Like you ever, like when you were a kid, did you ever go to a baseball game, maybe with your father, your grandfather, and or maybe they were home and they had this tiny little box in their hand that was a transistor radio. It was, uh, it worked on a nine volt battery. And basically what you would hear is something like this with no bass whatsoever. And it would be all muffled. And you're, that's that's what it sounded like. That's what it sounded like. So let me uh, fix my settings here. But yeah, I mean, it was just a little transistor radio, no bass, no nothing, but you got to hear it. And I honestly think that is something that WWE could do these, even if they charged three bucks, three bucks, have a house show event. All right, throw fucking one or two commentators that are practicing. I'm not saying Byron Saxton needs seasoning anymore, but you mean to tell me that you don't have one or two up-and-coming announcers and just throw them on a fucking microphone in the back and have it connect to a streaming, an audio streaming service, charge $3? You don't mean to tell me you can't get 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people to buy it just to listen in an eavesdrop? I guarantee you with that Starcade that took place not too long ago, even though it was a house show, if they would have said, you know what, for $3, we can't stream it, the video. And I know there's people out there, in 2018, 19, 20, you can't stream the video? What the heck? But I'm telling you, there, can, there cannot be a major expense involved with streaming audio live. Fucking people could do it with the bad school. And it would be video too. But before I play that one-minute audio clip, for those that are curious that are going to ask, since this week was one of their pay-per-listen events, what actually went down? It was called the Boston Brawl. Happened in Boston, Massachusetts at the Fleet Center. The main event was Hulk Hogan versus Sting in a cage. And the undercard had Hall, Nash, and Macho Man versus Luger, Page, and Zabisco. It's a stacked card. Bret Hart versus Ric Flair, the Steiners versus Raven and Saturn, Steve McMichael versus Greg Valentine, Chris Benoit versus Eddie, Jericho versus Malenko, Booker T versus Mr. Wall Street, a.k.a. IRS, and Bill Goldberg versus Buddy Lee Parker. So it's a pretty fucking stacked card. So now, again, if you're curious of how this audio sounded with the paper listens, 
Here you go. One minute of audio. You know, Lee Marshall on the microphone. I can't remember who else was on it, but this was the closing moments of when Goldberg lost his streak, lost to Kevin Nash because of Scott Hall and a taser. Gives you an idea of what this paper listen was at the time. And yes, the audio quality was just like this. Please, Disco, don't. Disco, don't, please. Goldberg kicks Disco and- what the hell is this Caproni doing in this match? I can't even believe it. Well, you know, Goldberg, he thinks he's in there with a member of the Wolfpack. He's obviously not. Disco's not Wolfpack. There's Bam Bam. He's in there now with Goldberg. Now, is there a DQ yet, or what's the deal? No. Bam Bam leaves the hard way. Kevin Nash. Now Nash goes back into the ring. Oh my god, Goldberg set Nash up for the spear. That's, that's a stun gun. Scott Hall! Scott Hall's got a stun gun. Scott Hall's got a stun gun. He hit him with a stun gun. Goldberg got hit with a stun gun. Kevin Nash doesn't know that Hall's in there. Hall hit him with a stun gun. No! Oh, here he goes! Oh man! By any means necessary, baby! This could be oh. If he covers him, it's over. He got him! He got him! Two! Oh my god, Nash killed Goldberg! I can't believe it! Scott Hall came out wearing the, the yellow security shirt. So there you go. Maybe one day someone will prove me wrong and upload these audios. I don't think anybody would really care about the dismal quality that they obviously would be in, but just sucks that we've only had one minute of audio. There's there's a particular website that's been bragging for a long time that they had them and they were going to put online. And then now when you go to that website, they're just trying to sell you a book. So it was like clickbait just to buy a book. And it does, the audio is not included with the book. I just should add. Now, at the beginning of the show, I aired the This Week in History of DX doing their uh, State of the Union or their uncensored words, whatever you want to call it. Well, something also happened that night on Raw, which was a pretty big deal at that time. Got the audio I'm going to share with you. It was the closing moments of a match on Monday Night Raw between Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. They brawled up. They brawled up the rampway into ultimately a dumpster. And then the New Age Outlaws came out and did something pretty fucked up. It was this week back in 1998 that Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie were thrown inside the dumpster uh, down about, I don't know, 20 feet whatever it was, and uh, it was a big storyline at the time. Big deal. And the screaming in the background that you hear is because a ton of wrestlers were surrounded by the dumpster because they played off literally that these guys died almost. The screaming you hear in the background is sunny. Enjoy. Welcome back to Raw, everybody. This is a no-holds-barred matchup between Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. They're friends, they're tag team partners, but they're one-on-one tonight, JR. They certainly are. These men love to fight. As we said before we went to break, some buddies like to go play golf. These buddies like to fight. They're tag team partners. Anything goes in this match. This is exactly the kind of match that Terry Funk and Cactus Jack built their individual reputations. Who is the king of the hill? Who's the man in these type of matches? Both of these men think it's them. Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie asked the WWF to have this matchup. They wanted the one-on-one matchup. They wanted no holds barred, and they're getting it right here tonight on Raw. And they they brought the party gifts with themselves. 
Cactus Jack brought that dumpster full of weapons. Oh, look at this. Look at this. Oh, no. Oh! Chainsaw backdrop from the, the uh, table right into the dumpster. That's the big oversized dumpster that Cactus Jack brought. And it, it looks like Shades of Mankind, the Mandible Claw. The Mandible Claw through that stocking. They've used everything here tonight. Garbage cans, ladders, chairs. This is a no-holds-barred matchup between Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. Tag team partners going one-on-one -on -one tonight in a match they requested. Cactus and Chainsaw asked the World Wrestling Federation to have this matchup. We're getting it right here tonight. Well, and they have done everything, too. And where in the world is Cactus Jack going? Oh, no. Cactus Jack climbing the ladder here. This is not a ladder match. Cactus Jack is climbing up on the, uh, the, the giant Titan Tron. Folks, I promise you, you won't see this anywhere but here in the WWF. Chainsaw Charlie's in the dumpster. Cactus Jack is standing above it. Cactus Jack is getting himself in position. Chainsaw is down in the dumpster. And want to see a funny little random segment featuring Eric Bischoff this week in history in 1999 Eric Bischoff was in a dunk tank during Monday Nitro and it was JJ Dillon who was throwing balls I think Lepaka was giving him the balls and he knocked Eric Bischoff in the dunk tank so it's a little random thing now we get to the XFL this week in the year 2000 Vince McMahon announced, well, remember, first it was Vince McMahon making the announcement, and then he signed up with NBC because Dick Ebersol, uh asked Vince if he had a TV deal, which he did not, and ultimately would join up with Vince McMahon to have a joint venture with the XFL. I got to tell you all, I am shocked to shit that there is not one audio clip online featuring Vince McMahon's announcement announcing the creation of the XFL. It was a big deal here in New York back then. It was the year 2000. 
Vince McMahon was at WWF New York. There was a ton of press at that time. Vince McMahon was animated as fuck, talking about the XFL and the legitimacy of it, and this, this, and that, and how wrestling was not going to be involved with it. Now, because ESPN did that recent special talking about the, the XFL from back in the day, they did air a little segment for like two or three minutes just talking about the press conference from that night. So I'm going to share that audio with you. I wish I would have had the audio of the press conference. I read so many articles this weekend going back to, you know, this week in 2000, the transcript. There's XFL retro sites out there. Nobody has the press conference. I can't believe it. Nobody. I can't find an, an illegal book. Nothing. So here's the highlights. 2000. Vince McMahon announces the creation of the XFL. On February 3rd, 2000, one year before kickoff, we held a press conference at the WWE restaurant in Times Square, and we announced that the XFL would kick off one year from today, February 3rd, 2001. Where's the kind of football that the NFL used to be? Where's my smash mouth wide open football? It's gone. Of course, we had no coaches, no players, no teams, no team names, no stadiums, and no TV deal. But we announced. Some suggest that the NFL stands for the No Fun League. The XFL is going to be the Extra Fun League. The proposition to put together an entire football league in a year is an insane proposition. We will take you places where the NFL is afraid to take you. Well, quite frankly, we're not afraid of anything. Now, when I saw that, I was like, oh, what are we doing? But that was classic Vince. I just think he couldn't help himself. Is this your quest to go legit? I just love that one. May I never be ever thought of as legit. I remember sitting in my office, which was right outside of Dick's office, and I had a TV there, and I had a press conference on showing Vince talking about the XFL. This will not be a league for panty waist or sissies. I said, Dick, you've got to see this. Dick just buzzed me. Get Vince on the line. This will be a blast. On the way home in the car, Vince got a call from Dick Ebersaw. Dick asked Vince, do you have a TV deal? And Vince said, no. Dick said, don't make a deal till we talk. I knew we would be covering the XFL. As a wrestling fan in the year 2000, I mean, we were very excited to to see this happening. We were also very curious if wrestling was going to get involved with it. We as at me I know as a wrestling fan and I was doing hotlines at that time and I still have some of the audio from then. I'm going to upload some more retro stuff very soon. But I remember us being a little bit concerned that Vince would not resist and put a little wrestling element into it as well. And obviously that's what ultimately happened. Um but we'll get into that in a moment because this week in history also was the actual launch of the XFL. And I got some audio that I think you'll all enjoy, but as a wrestling fan that week, not only was it big because of the launch or the announcement of the XFL, the creation of the XFL, but it was that same week. And it might've even been the same day that we were watching Monday night, raw sitting at ringside, Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Perry Saturn, Dean Malenko. Now, if you've been following the last couple of episodes of This Week in Wrestling History, you hear it week by week in chronological order of the Radicals leaving WCW to go to WWE. 
Chris Benoit winning the title. And then, you know, you know, you look back on it. You know, WCW gave them unconditional releases. That's something that nobody really ever brings up. And yes, maybe at that time, there was no other way to release someone. And you know what? The more I think about it, that's probably the only way it was because Rick Rude, I mean, look, he was on three different promotions all in one week. Yeah, Jeff Jarrett leave WWE. And you can't, yes, it was contracts expiring, but still, it was interesting that they were able to jump from WCW and go right to WWE television. But it was this week that the Radicals sat ringside. They would then uh, start interacting with DX a little bit. Eddie Guerrero, ultimately, that same, that same night, did the frog splash, injured his elbow. And what I think a lot of people forget, you know, if you watch the Monday Night Wars video, if you watch some of the clips on the network, you know, we always see the highlights of the Radicals sitting at ringside and then they attack, you know, DX and uh, Eddie hits the frog splash on Billy Gunn and Eddie had injured his elbow. But what I think a lot of people forget is the following night on SmackDown, Eddie Guerrero actually wrestled. He actually wrestled. In fact, the Radicals all wrestled the next night. X-Pac defeated Dean Malenko on SmackDown. Road Dogg and Billy Gunn defeated Saturn and Eddie Guerrero on SmackDown. And Triple H defeated Chris Benoit on SmackDown. So they all had their debut matches the following night on TV. And then we would see Eddie in the sling and he would be out for a little bit of time. So there you go, 2000, a very big year in wrestling. 2001 as well. So we're going to jump to 2001. And I got some audio clips I'm going to share with you. I hope you enjoy it. It was one year to the day of the announcement of the creation of the XFL that the XFL would hold their first two games. The nationwide audience would have Matt Verskurgeon, which if you watch MLB Network, you, you know him very well. I'm a big fan of his. And Jesse Body Ventura. And the secondary feed was Jerry the King Lawler and Jim Ross. And, you know, the first week that they had the XFL, you know, as far as ratings-wise, it did a great rating. It did 15.7 million viewers, which was a hell of a lot more than they ever expected. But, look, I'm not going to reiterate the entire XFL history We've talked about it. There's clips of our shows talking about it. You got the ESPN documentary. You know that their ratings took a major hit in the weeks later. And then Vince would have the storylines a little bit of, you know, the women backstage. And it just got really, really horrible. And, you know, look, you look at the ESPN documentary, Matt Vaskurgeon feeling very uncomfortable with certain camera angles of, of the women. And, you know, you see a little bit of camel toe and stuff like that. And uh, it was it was unique. But... Vince McMahon immediately had a wrestling influence in this. Yes, they were only cutting promos, but still, I was a big fan of The Rock at that time. I was a gigantic wrestling fan at that time. I'm still a big wrestling fan. But I will admit, when I turned on the XFL, and the first thing that I see outside of the opening music is The Rock on their fucking Titantron. It just, I don't know, I just felt really, really off about it. And I remember going on my hotline the next day and just kind of criticizing the wrestling influence in it. Because remember, it wasn't just The Rock that cut a promo that night. 
Vince McMahon cut his promo, which deservingly he had every right to because he created the league. He wanted to welcome everyone. So Vince, I'm fine with. But you had Steve Austin and you had The Undertaker and you had Jerry Lawler almost talking about puppies, you know, every time they went to, you know, the feed with him and JR. So here is some highlights from the first night of XFL this week, back in 2001, you're going to hear the opening, Vince's intro. You're going to hear Mike Adamley, which you all make fun of over the years. And I've joked about him over the years. Now we don't make fun of him anymore because we know that he's he's ill. And But the way he worked in WWE television was, was terrible. But you hear him on XFL's uh, The Field. He sounds great. Fine. No stuttering, no nothing. Pressure-free, kind of. So you're going to hear some highlights of what went down that night. I really hope you enjoy it because I put these together and uh, sound quality is still pretty damn good. So here you go. Highlights. XFL week one this week, 2001. If you smell what the rock is cooking. The Rock says he's all psyched about the XFL. Oh, wait a minute. The Rock isn't psyched. He's pumped about the XFL. No, 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 no. The Rock isn't pumped. The Rock is geeked about the XFL. Yeah, that's it. The Rock is geeked. Oh, wait a minute. The Rock was geeked last week, so The Rock can't be geeked now. The Rock is more than that. The Rock says he's cranked about the XFL. As a matter of fact, The Rock is just like everybody else in America. We're all psyched, pumped, geeked, and cranked. So to all the coaches in the XFL, to all the players in the XFL, and on behalf of the fans in the XFL, The Rock simply says, just bring it. Just bring it. of the XFL, Vince McMahon.
from a sold-out, jacked-up Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas. Week one of the XFL, the New York, New Jersey Hitmen and the Las Vegas Outlaws. It is perhaps the most eagerly anticipated inauguration that the sports world has seen in quite a while. The creation of a brand-new style football league, the XFL. Matt Vaskersian, Jesse Ventura, and Jesse as excited as fans have been for this day to come. The guys really excited for this are those guys out on the field. Absolutely, Matt. It's the players. And let me talk about the players for a moment and the sacrifices they have had to make to play the game that they love. Many of them left jobs. They left loved ones. And they put it all on the line because practice started in November. They got paid not one nickel to go through these practices to arrive here tonight. They put it all on the line. Now, tonight they will get paid. But the thing I love about the XFL is the heart and soul that these players show for the love of the game of playing football and the opportunity of continuing to play the game they love here in the XFL. It's a night of firsts in Las Vegas and to help us kick off this historic night, let's go down to the field with Mike Adamley. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the personification of the XFL. He is the league's director of competition. He is Hall of Famer Dick Butkus. You know, in the past, all football games get started with a coin toss. No way, Jose. Here we are in the XFL. We're going to compete for the right to choose who possesses the ball at the start of the game. Two players, one ball. Whoever possesses the ball gets his choice, not only for the start of the game, but also for overtime, should that be necessary. Good luck, guys. And once again, to win the scramble, you must have full possession. Representing the New York, New Jersey Hitmen, number 21, safety, Donnie Caldwell. For the Las Vegas Outlaws, number 28, safety, Jamel Williams. Let's go to head referee, Randy Crystal. Okay, once again, once again, guys, it's going to be ready, set, and a whistle. Don't jump and go for the ball on each other. Ready, set. A couple of safeties going to scramble for the right to possession. The hometown hero is on it, but the ball's still alive. Jamel Williams jumps on it. Yes. And the hometown guys have right to kick or receive. We haven't even started yet, buddy, and the place is already going nuts. And here you see it. They're both going for it. Caldwell and Williams to dive. The ball squirts loose. Still an open ball. And Williams lands on the ball, so Las Vegas will receive the kickoff. I hear the guy who runs NFL, Paul Tagliabue, said that the XFL is a non-issue. A non-issue? Hell, I think that's an insult to football fans everywhere and an insult to the men knocking heads on the football field. You know, Mr. Tagliabue, you might be careful of that non-issue, just might bite you on your ass. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. 
You might say I'm a gambling man, which means I fit right in out here in Las Vegas. Some people are asking me whether the XFL will be a success. Well, here's a tip from me, The Undertaker. Don't bet against it. Pretty exciting stuff going on down in Orlando. We'll be back to check in from here in Vegas in moments, but let's go to our colleagues Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler. Folks, we are live in Orlando. The King is in hog heaven with these uh, Orlando cheerleaders, and we got a hell of a ball game here. Fourth quarter, just over 11 minutes to go. Orlando leading 27 to 22, King. Uh, you're here for the football, JR. I'm here for the cheerleaders. Oh, check them out. Later tonight on NBC, WWF superstar The Rock hosts Saturday Night Live. Smell what The Rock's cooking later on tonight. What a fitting way to end this, this first XFL game here in Orlando. One big play for the ball game. Chicago down by four. Lester in the shotgun. Throw it low as far as he can. He got the last pick on the last play of the game. Folks, it has been a great night here in Orlando. A huge crowd. And Baby King, they were raucous. Oh, they were raucous. Oh, and the cheerleaders, they were lovely. They had their backfields in motion all night, and the hidden was great. We had a slobber knocker. Two days later, to cross-promote, the XFL on SmackDown, they had a special edition of SmackDown called SmackDown Extreme. Every match had a stipulation. And if you're curious of what the card was that night, the Dudleys over the Hardys, Ivory over Jacqueline and Lita, the APA over Edge and Christian, Jericho over Taz, Big Show over Billy Gunn, Kane and The Undertaker over Haku and Rikishi, and Kurt Angle over Triple H and The Rock. 2001, the same week, same year. Women of Wrestling had their first and only pay-per-view. It was called Unleashed. About 9,500 were in attendance, which honestly you got to consider a success. Even though they did comp the shit out of that event, go search the old news articles. I actually have hotline reports recorded covering it at that time. And yes, I saw it on pay-per-view. I am one of the idiots that bought it because only about 6,000 pay-per-view buys took place. And I still have the entrance themes of all of the wrestlers that were on in this promotion because this was the time I was doing WrestleVision online, which was a 24-hour, well, no, it wasn't WrestleVision. WrestleVision is when I used to tell everybody when wrestlers were going to be on TV, like in movies or talk shows. You remember that? If you do a Google search, type in WrestleVision Anthony de Blasi in quotations. You will see all of the articles that I used to write in the early 2000s. I used to do so much goddamn research every day to give you a list of wrestlers that were appearing on television for whatever reason, movie role, TV interview, guest spot, host, controversy. Check it out because, you know, I, I, that's something I never ever talk about on these shows. But at that time, I was also doing Tombstone Radio. And if you ever want to see what Tombstone Radio looked like, my website, wrestling-news.com. Before I owned that domain, it was wrestleguide.com. And if you Google the website Wayback Machine, 
that allows you to see websites of how they looked five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And if you type in my website on the Wayback Machines website, you go back to 2001, you look at the main page, you'll see my advertisement, which I talked about uh, in the past, which I get to talk about again in a little bit, which is cool. Uh, I'm not going to say what it is yet, but um, I could say it. I had a video game. No, no, I'll, I'll wait till, till, till later. But also I had Tombstone Radio. And basically, while you were surfing the net for absolutely free, you click on my link, and I had wrestling theme music streaming 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Wrestling themes from NWA, WCW, ECW, WWE, AWA, a couple of songs, Japan, WOW, TNA, we had a little shortly thereafter, and I had themes that you could not find anywhere else. And because I aired it through Live 365, which was the website, the audio quality was not that good. And you had to see how many times we would play songs like Steve Carino's theme in ECW. Everybody wanted it at that time. Tajiri and Mikey Whipwreck's theme with the Sinister Minister. <laughs> I fucking played that on there. And it was like, oh, dude, I'll fucking pay you, dude. I, I couldn't. Because someone who worked behind the scenes gave me access to the theme and said, I will break your fucking legs if you ever trade it to someone. Give I don't care if you're going to get laid if you give this song to someone. Do not share with everyone. And if anybody's going to ask me, do I still have that music? Of course I do. It's stored away somewhere. But um, I, I don't think Mikey and uh, Tajiri's song is yet to be released. And not only, I had a lot of respect for Harry Slash. Harry Slash did a lot of ECW music at that time. And um, Harry Slash is really, really good people. I will never, and if he ever hears this, because I know he tunes in once in a blue moon, Harry, if you ever hear this, I will never forget what you did for me in USA Pro. Guy gave me such great advice, and one time in particular, I, you know, I'll share a little story very quickly with Harry Slash, okay? There's, and his video of this part happening. You know, I, I was never, you know, good, in anything I did in indie wrestling. I, I was a newbie. I was very intimidated. There were a lot of people who were just trying to fuck up any little thing that I did were doing indie stuff at the time, doing the managing stuff. And I love this guy to death. It's just, it's a shame that I don't talk to him anywhere near like I used to, but low life, Louis Ramos, we were doing a little storyline for some fun where I was playing a money mark, working behind the scenes, Louis for long story short, legitimately, was uh, had a child on the way with him and his wife. And we were doing a storyline because he had announced publicly that he was going to retire from the hardcore scene. And because he was going to have a kid and he was get, he was married and, you know, everything like that, we were doing a storyline where um, we were forcing him to wrestle hardcore because he needed the money to raise the family. And even though he would come out and try to wrestle regular matches, you know, I would have Balls Mahoney come out and have New Jack come out. And they would just brutalize him and he would be forced to, you know, retaliate. I had Abdullah the Butcher come out. You know, so the thing is, is that at that time, um, Lowlife Louie had lost a match against Balls Mahoney. And I went ringside with a microphone and there's some photos, some screenshots of it online if you if you look around for it. And I did the whole Florida, you know, like uh, Disney World thing. When you go to Florida, you know, you just lost your match, got your ass kicked. What are you going to do next? And he whacks me in the head with a chair, knocks me the fuck out. My watch breaks. I'm on the floor. He's beating 
me on the back of my jacket. The blood from Louis Ramos is all over my jacket. The fucking jacket is ruined. Everybody around ringside is fucking loving every minute of it. And, you know, I, I, now remember, I was also doing the tickets and the other stuff for Mass Maniac. So after the segment was over, I went to the back and I was, you know, sitting in the back and I was a little woozy because the chair shot was fucking hard. But, you know, me, I was not anything good. So I felt, okay, if you're going to do something where you're going to hit me with something, fucking make it look great. I, I could take it. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. So he whacked me with a really fucking hard chair shot. So I'm in the back, and now I'm wondering in intermission, what am I going to do? You know, I am, how do I really sell that I just got fucking hit like this? Harry Slash walks up to me with fucking gauze, and he's without me saying a word. He didn't even hear me talking. And he goes up to me, he says, dude, come here for a minute. He takes gauze, and he starts wrapping it around my head. And it looked kind of corny and everything, but he's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing this. And he's like, when you go back out there, you know, you you sell that you got really injured from that chair shot. And when I, when he did that, I just stood there and I was like so appreciative of it because I didn't seek him out. I didn't ask him to do nothing. He went out of his way, got gauze from somewhere, added a little bit of, you know, visual to it to make it look like that. I got a little busted open and I'll never forget that. It was a big fucking deal. There's so many stories that I have never, ever told publicly that I think maybe I'll start, bringing them out there because I think you will all really enjoy it. And I think the reason why is because I never wanted to bring up as far as a focus on me doing any indie stuff. Yeah. I always do the focus on the shows with the shows because these are my shows. I mean, you're tuning in to listen to me. So yeah, I, I always find that funny when I do breakfast of Blasi or something else. And some people are like, it's always about you. It's always about you. Yeah. It's an opinion show. It is about me. I'm not here just reading fat. I'm going to share stories. That's the idea. That's the way I've always done it. This is my 20th year. So there's a story that you have never heard before public that I told you. And if you were ever a fan of Harry Slash or a friend of Harry Slash, if you still communicate with him, tell him hello. I mean, just show him some love. That guy was really, really good people. In, in wrestling, in ECW, in the indie circuit, what he did for Jack Sabbath, Harry Slash is really, really, really fucking good people. And not only that, his uh, group, the Slash Tones, I remember their fucking music was was great as well. I, I don't know if he still has a presence online on social media. I haven't looked, but you still communicate with him. Show him some love, seriously. All right, so again, 2001, Women of Wrestling had their pay-per-view. I, re- I just remember that night, the main event. Thug over Selena Majors in a steel cage match. I didn't like I just thought it was kind of abysmal, to be honest with you. So that was the event that night. And if you all want, I, look, I, I shouldn't even say it because I'm sure on YouTube there's got to be the entrance themes of all of these women. I mean, I I understand they're corny and they're dumb. You know, Randy Rara. It was like a, if I remember correctly, wasn't Patty Pep and Randy Rara like a spoof of uh, Oh Mickey, you're so fine. I think it was that Randy Rara, Randy Rara. Yo, Patty Pep, Patty Pep. They were horrible. But still, they're hokey theme music. But you know what's funny? I listened to the theme music that they made. You look at the characters. The theme music fit the characters perfectly. And you look sometimes in WWE, of course, Glorious is 
fun to sing along with. Nakamura's, it's fun to sing along with. But there's a lot of songs out there that don't really match the identity of the wrestlers they're coming out to. Not all, but some. 2002. <laughs> I was going to play the audio to this, but the commentating. I don't know what it was with WWE Audio with some of the SmackDown tapings in 2002, but they piped in crowd noise so freaking loud sometimes that it really, like, it it distorted the commentating of Michael Cole and Jerry Law and everybody else that was commentating. I don't know what the fuck it was, but I was going to play the audio because we always remember about Man, uh, Maven eliminating Undertaker at the um, Royal Rumble. I think what a lot of people forget is that Maven, a couple of weeks later, this week in history, 2002, he defeated The Undertaker to win the Hardcore Championship. Yes, I kid you not. And, you know, I just remembered it now. On this past Wednesday, Wednesday's edition of Breakfast with Blossie, so, someone had asked me, like, name some people who I liked in wrestling that other peop most people hated and vice versa. And I had mentioned that one of the persons that I could not stand back in 2002 that actually got a decent pop from the crowd was Maven. I hated that motherfucker. I, I didn't hate him personally, but I just, he never impressed me in the ring. I just never liked him. And it got to the point as a goof, I created my own video game, Maven Invaders. And I talked about it in detail on this past Wednesday's Breakfast of Blossy, if you want to go check it out. But again, if you go back to the Wayback Machine website and go look at my website from 2001 and 2002, you will see the link right in the middle, Maven Invaders. And you know what? I, I Maybe I'll use that as the synopsis picture. For this week. I'm not sure. I got to go back and see how good it looks as far as in a photo. So, so we'll see. That same night on SmackDown, I watched this moment again a couple of days ago. I haven't seen it since then. And you want to see something, you know, for all you that really think Tori Wilson is still hot, which she is, go back this week, 2002. Stacey Keebler and Tori Wilson versus Billy and Chuck in a pose down contest in the ring. They had three different poses they had to do back-to-back, -back, down in front, and face-to-face. -face. I always get a kick out of this segment now because I'm reminded back then that Tori Wilson obviously did not have shoes to wear, and she wore someone else's shoes. There's black, sexy shoes, but they're like two or three sizes too big on her. Uh, and I don't think they're supposed to be worn that way, but go, go seek it out. Pretty funny shit. This week in 2003, Kane versus Goldberg. Now, I wanted to play the audio, but the audio you hear just basically like a thunder sound and the crowd going nuts. This is something that you really need to see visual if you haven't seen it before, if you completely forgot about it. It was a big deal back then. They were hyping up where The Undertaker was teasing Kane and teasing a return that he was going to get his revenge on Kane. Well, this week in 2003... Kane was wrestling Goldberg on television and then right smack in the middle of the match, it went dark, a lightning bolt struck the ring. Then they showed on a Titan Tron, little teasing that the undertaker was coming back. And then the fucking ring filled up with smoke. You know, some of the visuals were a little over the top, but still it was pretty cool. So if you want to go check it out this week, 2003, 
2005 this week, WWE had the Royal Rumble. If you noticed last week and the week before were a majority of the Royal Rumbles from history, this week were more of the last, I guess you could call, 13 years for the most part that had Royal Rumbles. First one we're talking about is 2005. Batista in this one last eliminated John Cena to win the Royal Rumble match. Uh, how this went down and why it's always memorable. And I feel bad. I mean, look, I feel bad, but we were doing podcasts at that time and the audio's online and we were laughing to the point where I, there hasn't been many times where I laughed to the point where I almost pee my pants. Usually my medulla oblongata swells up and that is one legitimate thing about me. If I laugh too hard, like there's a side on my face that just swells up right by my temple area and I get a headache from it. But I remember that night, even though it's so like terrible, it was just funny with the way it looked on TV. If you don't remember what I'm talking about, this week in history, 2005's Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Originally, Batista and John Cena eliminated themselves at the same time. Vince McMahon was supposed to enter the ring and basically announced that the match was going to restart with those two finalists in the ring. Ultimately, Batista would eliminate Cena and win the Royal Rumble. But as Vince was walking to the ring, he tore both of his quads. And again, it's not funny to say he's up there in age now, but we're going back 13 years ago and the guy's a heel. And it was just the guy fucking tore both his quads walking to the ring and he's ordering the restart and he's sitting in the corner. A la Raven. It is fucking funny, but it's not funny. But yeah, it's fucked up. He tore his quads walking to the ring. You know, he does that power walk or whatever, but still. That same uh, night of note, it was the last real notable appearance for Daniel Pewter. Following this, he was sent to developmental ter territory and then was offered to go to Deep South Wrestling, declined. He ultimately was released. And just to make a, a note, random tidbit, this Royal Rumble in 2005 was the first pay-per-view since the Wrestling Classic. Remember that one? I talked about that no, not too long ago. That, mat, that night was always memorable for the number of matches that lasted three minutes or less. The Wrestling Classic, 1985. This Royal Rumble was the first time since 85 that they did not have a tag team match on the show. Interesting tidbit. This week in 2008, Brock Lesnar makes his UFC debut at UFC, UFC 81. He lost by submission to Frank Mir in 90 seconds. That same week in 2008, Bobby Lashley announces on his MySpace that he has left WWE. This is less than a year after they hyped up, you know, the Battle of the Billionaires. And remember last week I talked about it, what, 2007, where, you know, they had money coming down and all that other shit. But he made this statement on YouTube, and I quote, circumstances which are out of my control left me no decision but to leave WWE. I can't go into details of this now, but like I said before, sometimes people will hate you personally and try to destroy you, which is what happened here. Evil has prevailed. However, like I said before, if you continue your struggle, doors will open around these people. You have not seen the last of me, so please do not stop your support. And uh, that was it. Now, if you follow me over the years, I remember Bobby Lashley on his website. You remember that? He made this announcement that he was going to break some information and news that was going to shock the world of wrestling. 
and try to insinuate that he was going to expose something about WWE and he pussied out. And ever since then, I've always joked about Bobby Lashley being a little bit of a pussy. I mean, you know, people have said over the years, he's a really good guy, very likable guy. And honestly, I will say this for the first time. When you look back, you realize that, you know, a lot of this had to do with, you know, the relationship he was in with a woman. I think all of us probably, for the most part, would be kind of pissed off if we were treated or, you know, someone you love was treated a certain way as well. So, you know, maybe I was a little bit hard on Bobby Lashley back then. I just felt like making that public statement and then I think he took it down. And I'm sure that there's old articles that I could Google and pull that information. But I remember posting it and taking it down. I was like, ah, pussy, you know, but you know what? It's a much different time now and time heals all wounds and people do learn from, from their, their errant ways. And you know, the WWE now compared to the WWE 10 years ago is not the same. So this week in 2009 on WWE's ECW, Finley defeated Jack Swagger. The reason why I mention this is because this loss was Jack Swagger's first in WWE. Also at this time, WWE was transitioning to PG only. Kelly Kelly this past week in 09 was on Bubba the Love Sponge. And when she was asked about future matches that were like bra and panties matches, she said, nope, nope, no more. We're PG now. And that's not happening. And it was this week that WWE uh, audibly changed John Cena's finishing move. Before it was called the FU, then they called it, I think, the Attitude Adjuster, and then it ultimately went to the Attitude Adjustment. So this week, 2009. 2010, Royal Rumble. This is most noted for the unadvertised return of Edge. He was out for five months with a shoulder injury. He would go on to eliminate John Cena to win the Royal Rumble, get a main event at WrestleMania 26. They make note that his seven-minute, 19-second performance is the shortest ever for any Royal Rumble winner. That same night, Christian defeated Ezekiel Jackson to retain the ECW title. This is the last time that the title is defended on a pay-per-view because something would happen the next month. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let's first stay with 2010 in February, this week in history. A couple of days after the 2010 Royal Rumble, Vince McMahon made a very surprising appearance on ECW television, the WWE version of ECW, and made an announcement. And when you hear this announcement, if you ever watch the footage, because we, we talked about it on the Don Tony and Kevin Castle show in 2010, pay attention to the crowd. They piped in crowd cheer and crowd noise at one point and then didn't do it in any other points. And it's funny because when you listen to the audio back, you know, when he first makes the announcement, you hear the crowd boo. So obviously they're not happy about, you know, what the announcement was just made. But then Vince announces that something else is going to debut soon and you don't hear anything for the most part. And then when he gets into the details, the crowd like pops big time. And when you think about it, you're like, wait, he didn't even reveal what it is or anything like, and, and you like, why would the crowd like get excessively excited about this? And then at the very end of his statement where he finishes up, the crowd is dead. And if you watch the video, as you hear that crowd doing that big pop of excitement, there's nobody making a reaction. 
It was just, they did, they tended to do this a lot back then. And we used to point it out. I mean, once in a while you do hear audio of crowds being piped into speakers, nowhere near as it used to be. But man, did they do it back then more than, than ever before, in my opinion. And they did such a dismal job of it. But let's play the audio. This week in 2010, Vince announces ECW is going to be no more. And a new show was going to be launched called NXT. I don't think he even said NXT that night, but here's the audio. Enjoy, everyone. I would like to proudly announce that in three weeks' time, ECW will be going off the air. I'd like to thank all of the technicians, cameramen, directors, producers, Everyone, certainly the superstars who made ECW the success that it truly was. I would also like to thank in advance everyone, especially all of you, who will be responsible for the success of bringing a new, innovative, never-before-seen program broadcast at the very same time here on Sci-Fi. This will be the next, the next evolution of the WWE. This will be the next evolution of television history. Thank you very much. As I said earlier, ECW was on life support by this time. It was mostly WWE's fault. And even though you didn't want to see ECW go, the name, the label, the letters, you know, still, it was time for it to go. And uh, you look at it, it's that many years already. The announcement of NXT. Also this week in 2010, TNA and Scott Steiner part ways. And I'm sure later on this year when it's the anniversary, we will talk about it. The problems that Scott Steiner would have with TNA following this, the derogatory statements he said on social media, which led to TNA actually suing Scott Steiner. Interesting. 2011, WWE had the Royal Rumble this past week, and it was most noted for the returns of Kevin Nash and Booker T. Kevin Nash hadn't been seen in WWE since 2003. Booker T hadn't been seen in WWE since 2007. And this Royal Rumble is the one and only time WWE ever had 40 men in the Royal Rumble match. Now, if I remember correctly, didn't they come out every 60 seconds instead of two minutes? I don't know if it was 60 seconds or 90 seconds, but this is one of the reasons why they got away with doing 40. But man, there was so many people that were in the ring for such short amounts of time. But when you got 40 people in the match, I mean, you kind of expected that. Now, a moment that is kind of embarrassing. You look back at it, it's a little ridiculous, but, you know, okay, it's The Undertaker, so, you know, we let it go. This week in 2002, Undertaker comes out to challenge Triple H to a match at WrestleMania. Undertaker is wearing one of the most ridiculous-looking wigs that you ever saw. I mean, it was so bad, and everybody knew it was a wig. It was just... Some people thought he might have borrowed Kane's wig, you know, but I don't think so. You look at this up close, This is it doesn't look like Kane's wig hair at all but it just was so <laughs> it was horrendous really i mean go back and look at it you know you got to remember undertaker shaved his head you know and what a lot of people really thought at that time 
was, you know, Undertaker shaved his head. Not obviously that close to WrestleMania, but shaved his head a while back before. And people must have thought that it was going to grow back enough where he can have his regular hair for WrestleMania, but it did not grow back anywhere near that they originally expected. So they fucking had him come out with a wig. Now, remember, this is now this week in history for the beginning of February. So WrestleMania was still about two months away. But you're not going to grow more than a couple of inches of hair in two months. So ultimately, we saw how his hair looked at WrestleMania in 2012. And it was what it was. But why they made him come out with this wig, it, it, it was pretty, pretty sad. Pretty funny. But, you know, but again, it's Undertaker, so we let it go. And I mean that sincerely. So... Also, 2012, there was a big news article going around that WWE is considering bringing back the Cruiserweights for a show on the WWE Network. Now, remember, this is 2012. You know, 205 Live debuted not too long ago. So 2012, many, many years ago, they're thinking about doing a show on the WWE Network they want to focus around wrestlers that are around the 200-pound range. And um, that's it. You know, so was this the the original thoughts of 205 Live? Very possible. But that was the big news story going around this week in 2012, WWE considering a Cruiserweight show. 2013, I get to share this audio with everyone. You know, we always talk about Austin 316, the night that Austin 316 was born. Well, what about Hart 410? Remember Bret Hart, you know, rating things 4 out of 10? You ever wonder where that came from? Well, it was this week in 2013, Bret Hart did an interview talking about Triple H being overrated. And I'm not going to play the whole interview, but... This was the interview where, in my eyes, Hart 410 was born. This talent out there sometimes, and then you look at someone like Triple H, and um, I know I love when I look at him. He's he's always had a good look as far as his body went. You know, he always had a pretty muscular physique. But you look at someone like Hunter, and you go, "What has he ever really done?" What is he? One move that he ever created that nobody ever saw before, um, some high spots or an idea for a match, or I got this idea, or you know, like, I don't know what he ever brought to the table. He's mostly a guy that showed up and they've made him. Mm. He's always been a decent wrestler. I would consider him a, a pretty good wrestler and pretty talented, but great. I don't know. I don't think so. And if he's running the show. It goes back to my whole argument before. You got guys that are telling everyone what to do. What has he ever done? That's great. Like, he's never had a great match, I don't think, ever. Whenever I look at Triple H's matches, including the last one he had with Undertaker, and I don't really mean it as a knock, but I told myself before I watched it, because I'm trying to like Paul now these days, I go, I want to see him do something to make me think, yeah, he's... He's got greatness in him. But I, before Triple H wrestled Undertaker last year, was that last year? I remember watching it and going, I can picture the whole match in my head before I can tell you exactly what this match is going to be like and how it's going to go. And I remember watching it and it was exactly like I predicted. Like it was exactly mostly brawling, mostly brawling around on the floor and doing stuff that 
a lot of times that is pretty easy wrestling. That's just walking around, running somebody into the wall, and you know it's not really, it's not complicated. It's not. There's no genius behind it. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they were limited because of the type of match they were in. But I just thought you're both supposed to be these great wrestlers, and Undertaker is a great wrestler. Let's see it deliver it. And I thought, um, I thought it was mediocre at best, and maybe a four out of ten or three out of ten. Okay. As whereas uh, guys like Punk go out there, and it's like, okay, impress me, mm. and they do. And you watch it, and you go, that's that's good stuff. That's stuff I never thought of before. And it's unique and it's fresh. And I think, um, I don't know, I don't want to say, but I, I think Paul's a little overrated. Right. He's overrated for being great, but he, I can't sit here and tell you that I can name one match that I ever thought he ever had with anybody that was great. Mm. Well, that's fair. Good. A lot of good matches. And it's kind of a shame. He, did, he should have a great match somewhere with somebody and you'd think he would have had it by now but I don't think he's a great wrestler and um, that's just my thoughts on it I don't know do you think Bret Hart was a little bit too hard on Triple H I don't know but uh, you be the judge now another audio clip that I wish I could put up here but I don't fucking get it you know it, CBS has an on demand service that you could pay money every month and watch CBS shows, shows of today, shows from yesteryear, things that have been on CBS. Well, a couple of years ago, CBS brought back the Arsenio Hall show. I'm sure a lot of you remember when it was out. It only lasted for about a year. You know, a lot of people really shitted on it. Some people thought it was okay. I saw a couple of episodes here and there. I thought it was okay, but it was nowhere near what Arsenio Hall used to be. But on one of the episodes this week in 2014, Steve Austin was on. And in that interview he's talking about various array of topics but he also comments on cm punk quitting wwe and what fucking boggles my mind is number one there are a couple of clips on youtube of his appearance one of them the buffering is so pathetic i can't even edit it and put a decent clip on here there's another one where somebody just decided to take their fucking iphone and put it in front of their television and the audio quality is dismal there's another website that streams retro episodes of the yesenia hall show from 13 14 and the austin one is not there and i can't find it anywhere and cbs again i almost fucking signed up for their streaming service so i could get access to the arsenio shows get the audio from austin and then cancel my membership they don't have arsenio hall show on their streaming site i don't get it you look at what they offer on their streaming service arsenio hall show is not there but it was this week, Steve Austin talked about CM Punk walking on Arsenio. And from what I remember on the the interview clip, he basically said, you know, maybe you should reconsider and, you know, this is where you make your money and this is an ad. And, you know, he understood because he had walked out of WWE once and this and that, blah, 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 blah. So there you go. I don't know what the hell Maxim was thinking at this time, but it was this week in 2014, they announced, you know, Maxim Magazine, they announced on their website that there was going to be a new column written in their magazine and it was going to be done, none other, by the Iron Sheik. Now, Sheik was, I don't want to say he was peaking in 2014 with his crazy antics and stuff like that, but Sheiky was getting a lot of publicity at that time. And I don't think Maxim 
expected the column to last very long. But from what I see, it only lasted a couple of months. What's worse about it is if you go on Maxim's Facebook page and you go back to 2014, they listed there for people to send in questions for Shiki. And when, number one, you only get four or five responses. And of those responses, people are asking, what are taco tits? Is there a cure for anal fissue and things about lupus? I don't think they were expecting that. What's said about it as well, if you go to Maxim's website, they took the columns down. You can't find them on their website. We're going to wrap this up momentarily, everyone. Got to go to 2015, and it's sad because she's no longer with us, but China was trending on Twitter this past week in wrestling history for 2015. And it was all stemming from an interview that Triple H had done with Steve Austin on the WWE Network. During that interview, Triple H was asked a question, why is China not in the WWE Hall of Fame? Now, I'm not going to get into the interview recap and all of that, but China had logged on to Twitter and realized that she was trending and had tons and tons of messages. She had never trended on Twitter before. So she was fascinated, appreciative of it, and she responded to the conversation that Triple H and Steve Austin had on the network. She said on social media this week in 15, and I quote, I understand that the question was asked why I'm not in the Hall of Fame. I have my reason as to why. However, let me make this clear. If the WWE was ever to say that I was going to be inducted, either as part of the groundbreaking DX or as an individual, well, my answer would be what a friend of mine would say in the ring. Oh, hell yeah. It just want, I just want to take a minute to thank all the fans that keep my name out there. You have no idea what it means to me. I love you all. I have contacted WWE several times over the years. They have not responded back. So again, it's really, really sad that she's no longer with us. We know the battles that she had both medically and emotionally. God rest us all. And yes, I've said it many times before, much to the dismay of some of my listeners and some debates I've had with my co-hosts. I truly believe WWE will put China in the Hall of Fame. In fact, I will be surprised, very surprised, if she is not in the Hall of Fame by 2020. 2016, at the Impact tapings in Birmingham, England, I think a lot of you will remember this recently, Bobby Lashley defeated Kurt Angle. Now, even though this would not air until March on television, this was Kurt Angle's last match in TNA. So there you go. And finally, 2017. Wow, time flies by, man. Raw, this week in history, Samoa Joe makes his main roster debut, coming out attacking Seth Rollins for Triple H. Remember, didn't Seth Rollins get injured like right after this? And we thought that Seth Rollins' match was in doubt for WrestleMania. Well, this was this week in 17, Samoa Joe made his debut for Raw. Also this week at NXT's tapings, Cassius Ono made his return to NXT. And it was this week in 2017 on 205 Live, Akira Tozawa. Ha! 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 He made his debut. So there you go. Now, before we uh, call it an episode, let's get into the notable birthdays for this week. Those who are still with us, and those who are no longer with us. 
And also we will talk about the passings of those who we lost this week in history as well. First, notable birthdays for this week who are no longer with us. Happy birthday to Joyce Grable, Sailor Thomas, Crazy Luke Graham, Giant Gonzalez, Carrie Von Erich, all of them, God rest their souls. This week also, happy birthday to Dory Dixon, who's 82. Dory Funk Jr., who's 78. Ivan Putsky, 77. Mr. Saito, 76. Genichiro Tenru, 68. Dennis Condry, 66. Takashi Ishikawa, 65. Black Bart, 63. This might surprise some people. Fit Finley, age 60. Meng and Lawrence Taylor. Yes, I put Lawrence Taylor on there because he did main event WrestleMania, age 59. Marty Gennari turns 58. Pantera turns 54. Ray Odyssey, age 50. Doug Gilbert, age 49. Big Show, Sean Casey, not the baseball player. They turn 46. Dragon Kid turns 42. Happy birthday, Teddy Hart. He is 38. Chris Saban and Becky Bayless turn 36. Rockstar Spud, 35. Knuckles Madsen turns 34. Angela Fong, Savannah, and Mascarita de la Muerte turn 33. Madison Rain turns 32. Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey turn 31. And we want to acknowledge those who we lost this week in wrestling history. Dave Levin died at the age of 91. Jim died at 88. Tom Drake at 86, Tom Barbola at 85, Ignacio Martinez at age 82, Nicholas Spilios at age 79, Tito Montez at 78, Whipper Watson died at age 74, we lost Jack Briscoe this week at age 68, Big Jim Wilson at age 67, El Santo and Nelson Royale at age 66, Renato Torres and Chris Belkas at age 63, this week, we lost the Giant Bob at age 61, Bullet Bob Brown and Manny Villa-Lobos at age 56. Taken from us way too soon, Axel Rotten at 44, Luis Hernandez at 33, Dennis Clary at 31, and Gino Hernandez, age 28. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I will be back one week from today with episode six this week in wrestling history. Please Send your feedback. Tell me what you like about it. Tell me if there's anything you want added to it, things you may not like, things you think I should tweak. Please, your feedback is crucial and always appreciated. I'm a big boy. I can accept criticism if there's anything that you don't like about it. So follow me on Twitter, at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com, Facebook.com, slash Show. If you want to check out the archives of all of our non-patron shows, it is www.dontonykevincastle.com. If you want to email me, the email address is dontony at dontony.com. And finally, if you like what we do, you want to support the shows, if you could uh, swing a couple of bucks and help us keep the lights on and us in business and free for everyone, go consider our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash dontony. You have contests there, interaction with myself, Kev, Mish, like you can't re- interact anywhere else. We have exclusive podcasts that are only streaming on Patreon. Right now, there are over 45 episodes of Breakfast Soup, which is hosted by yours truly and Mish. 45 episodes of Castle Chronicles, which is Kevin Castle's solo show. We put advanced copies or advanced releases of this show, blah, 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 and a lot of other things as well over there. And, you know, we do giveaways every month as well, pay-per-view predictions contests. You could have all of that for as little as five bucks. 
So not only do you get a whole boatload of uh, fun in return, but you help us keep the lights on. So patreon.com slash Don Tony. Everyone be well. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will catch you all soon next week with your edition of This Week in Wrestling History. Take care, everyone. Be well. Ciao. Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments where bold moves require confident blueprints, where you can accelerate transformation through consistency, where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at SAIC.com cloud. Weekdays starting at 4 on NBC4. Another school year with so much uncertainty. News 4 is working for you, dedicating important coverage to keeping kids safe at school. Helping you navigate the biggest issues facing parents, children, and teachers. And giving you expert guidance from local doctors and educators. And showing you ways to manage stress. Weekday afternoons starting at 4 will help you get through the school year safely. Weekdays starting at 4 on NBC4. We're working for you.